years, I see myself. Um, I see myself traveling the world. By yourself? Or traveling the world. Is a joint in the picture? So, can you see it in the picture? Do you see something? You I, see a look, silhouette? honestly, I'm going to be 1,000. <laughs> <laughs> I want it. I want it. You don't see it in the picture. I want it. And I can't vividly see it. Yeah, it's okay. It's okay. But I see myself traveling to find that. Mm. You know what I'm saying? So I think I will like have by five to Yeah, by five to Whoa. By five to ten years world. though, I should be I should have that and I should be having a family and I should be um have had created, if not a million millionaires. At least a thousand. And and that'll have me content because all I really want to do for real, like I want to be of service, man. Like mm-hmm. that's what everybody wants. Everybody wanna have a use in this in this world. It's like you can get lost in translation, right? That's real. And I feel like my purpose is to 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 give away everything. I might be broke in ten years. I might give, <laughs> I might give away it all because I understand it's no it's no power in it. So I don't work for money now, right? But it comes to me. It's attracted to me. Mm-hmm. So I want to just give it away <laughs> and then see how it happens. See if I can rebuild it again. I love it. So that's the key. It. I don't know. I'm just I just hope that I'm traveling and the world is back to normal, and I can go around without a mask every day. Right. Weird. And um, I'm just happy. Good, good. So that's all it's about. That's what's up. Listen, man, I need y'all to go. There will be a link in the um, in the description to Mitch's course. Okay, um, I don't know what it is, but we're going to ten percent. Can we do ten percent? That cool? Ten percent off? That's a high percentage. Yeah, ten percent. Ten percent. So you gotta ask him on camera so they can't say no. It right, is, right. That's a key. See, he's teaching you the skills, man. He's teaching I, you I'm the skills. I'm doing this for y'all. I love y'all. For sure. Okay, so um, enter the code social proof and you will get 10% off Mish course. Um, and I will see you in the program, okay? So um, do they get the course? There's like a community or anything that we gather in? Uh, yeah, well, the only ones who gather in the community with me is uh, my mentee, so I do offer a mentorship program as mm-hmm. well. So if you would like that, please uh, hit me in a DM, push me Mitch. Good. I love it. I love it. All right, cool. So um, please just click the link in the description. Use the code social proof, S-O-C-I-A-L-P-R-O-O-F, all one word, social proof, and you'll get 10% off the course. Mitch, thank you so much, man. For sure. I appreciate you. I just want to also, before we get off here, give you your flowers real quick. My boy, do you see this? Do you see what you're doing right now? Do you see what you're doing for the people too? You know what I just did? What? I brought brought some millionaire information in front of an audience. Bruh. That's what I see that I just did. No, that's what you, that's what you're doing. And, And I think that's more powerful than anything that I've ever accomplished. I think it's just super dope what you're doing. And I know where you came from. Like, bro, you was already lit when I met you. But <laughs> you lit now. So that's dope, bro. I, I can keep doing what you're doing, bro. I really, I look up to you, bro, and it's, it's awesome. I love you, my brother. Yes, sir. Yes, look, man, Um, make sure, oh, you got to close this out with a strong word of wisdom, man. Ooh. Strong um, word. Strong word of Take wisdom. Take us home. 
Tips with Mitch, real quick. Hey, look, I go live every day, so make sure y'all know y'all gonna get a whole lot of uh, strong closeouts. So mm-hmm. check it out. Always use your social currency, because guess what? Your network is your network. Get it? Not even net worth. Your network is your network. You get it? All right, push me and Mitch. <laughs> you can't close it out no stronger than that. Listen, man, what? go to the bank. and <laughs> go, like, to the bank. go to the bank. <laughs> you go straight to the bank. Go holler at them. Tell them to get you a loan. Get you a car. Get the course. We about to make this thing happen, okay? So I want y'all. I want you guys to go get some social proof, okay? I meaning, meaning, I want you to go build something. Do it in excellence. Succeed at it. But then I want you to go teach somebody else how you did it. All right, man. Ooh, I will see y'all. That we was out dope. Here. Peace. Pimping and weapon possession. It was also noted that an alleged witness to the prosecution that agreed to testify against Chief Keefe mysteriously went missing before the upcoming trial. Um, Mr. Chief, do you have anything to do with that? The Chief's next arrest happened on April 8th, 2017 in Miami Beach, Florida. Police claim that while Chief Keefe was driving in a green Lamborghini, his passenger got out in the middle of traffic and started talking to the car behind theirs. Cops saw the commotion and thought they saw an exchange being made between the two suspects. This led to the police pulling over Chief Keefe and ultimately discovering marijuana in one of the vehicles. Keefe was charged with a DUI and was booked into jail moments later. During his sentencing, the cops revealed that they had found eight different drugs in the chief's system at the time of his arrest, all of which included morphine, codeine, promethazine, THC, hydrocodone, norcodine, dihydrocodine, and hydromorphone. Sosa eventually avoided jail on a guilty plea, but was sentenced to six months probation and 50 hours of community service. The final charge was reckless driving. And last but not least, we have the Chief's final arrest in South Dakota. In June of 2017, Chief Keefe was arrested after airport security found marijuana edibles and blunts in his bag. During his hearing the following Friday, Chief Keefe pled no contest to possession of a controlled substance, a Class 5 felony that is punishable with up to five years in prison. He was later released on bond, but was required to come back to South Dakota for his trial. His trial was almost two years later, on April 26, 2019, and the outcome was all in his favor. The judge gave the chief a suspended imposition of a sentence, which means no conviction will be entered as long as he meets the conditions set by a judge. Apparently, a defendant can only receive a suspended imposition of a sentence once in their lifetime in the state of South Dakota. When it was all said and done, Chief Keefe was ordered to pay a $500 fine, $104 in court costs, and $99 in testing fees. All the other charges were dropped. If you're wondering what the Chief is up to nowadays, well... It looks like he just sits around in his mansion all day, making music, smoking weed, and playing video games. Once in a while, he'll travel around to do some shows, but other than that, he seems to live a pretty chill life. And is staying out of trouble. 
His last arrest was in June of 2017, so almost two years without an arrest is pretty good. Let's hope he can keep it up. Well, there you have it. All of Chief Keefe's criminal history jammed into one video. If you enjoyed this video, make sure to give it a thumbs up. And if you want to see more content like this, then make sure to hit that subscribe button and turn on all notifications. Also, feel free to comment on who you want to see a criminal history video on next. That's all I have for today. I'm out. I'm Las Vegas criminal defense attorney Michael Becker. In Nevada, misdemeanor cases remain on your record forever unless you get them sealed. If your misdemeanor case gets dismissed, meaning there was no conviction, then you could petition for a record seal right away. But if you were convicted of a misdemeanor, there is a mandatory waiting period before you can become eligible for a record seal. For convictions of a first or second time DUI or a first or second time battery domestic violence, you must wait seven years after the case ends to petition for a seal. For convictions of battery, harassment, stalking, or violation of a restraining order, you must wait two years after the case ends to petition for a seal. And for all other misdemeanor convictions, there is a one-year waiting period after the case ends before you can petition for a record seal. Everyone who is eligible for a record seal is strongly encouraged to pursue it. Once your record is sealed, with few exceptions, the misdemeanor case will no longer appear on background checks. And you can legally deny ever having a criminal record during job interviews or even under oath. Getting a record seal requires a lot of paperwork and can take several months. So if you have a criminal record in Nevada, call my legal team at 702-DEFENSE. Here at the Las Vegas Defense Group, we can take care of the entire process for you. I'm Las Vegas criminal defense attorney Michael Becker. Ever since the 1 October massacre in 2017, when hundreds of innocent people were killed or injured by a lone gunman at the Mandalay Bay, Nevada lawmakers have been reevaluating how the state regulates weapons. Here are five things you need to know about the current state of Nevada firearm laws. One, a background check is now required for nearly all gun sales, including private and gun show sales, unless the purchaser has a CCW permit. Two, you do not need a license or registration to carry firearms openly in Nevada. Three, under NRS 202.350, you do need a CCW permit to carry concealed handguns in Nevada. Carrying concealed without a current invalid permit is a felony. Four, there are certain locations where guns are nearly always prohibited, such as schools, child care facilities, and airport secure areas. And five, the only way to get firearms rights restored once they've been lost due to a past felony conviction is through a governor's pardon. 
If you or a loved one is facing criminal charges in Nevada, call my legal team at 702-DEFENSE for a free consultation. NRS Section 422A defines welfare fraud here in the state of Nevada. And welfare fraud encompasses a wide array of conduct, such as providing false information in relationship to an application for welfare, not disclosing assets or property that you have that may be relevant to the assessment of whether you're entitled to receive welfare benefits, using a false identification in the application process for welfare benefits, not disclosing that children or dependents living in your home are no longer living there when in fact you're receiving benefits, moving from another state when receiving benefits from one state and not disclosing to the receiving state that you've moved to another state. These are all grounds for prosecution for welfare fraud. And the penalties for welfare fraud can be very severe, resulting in potential prison of up to four years, including restitution. Fortunately, more often than not, when prosecuting welfare fraud related crimes, the state is most interested in making sure that state agencies receive full restitution for the amounts of monies that have been paid. So it's very common that we may be able to negotiate a resolution where a, a charge against you is dismissed if you pay restitution in full or if restitution is paid during the investigatory stages a case never gets filed at all. I could get my brother right here who got good credit, get two on his, don't got to mess up my DTI. I don't got to worry about if I got too many cars in my DTI thing. debt to income. That's the income ratio. Yeah. yeah. I don't got to worry about that because my brother, I'm going over here to the left. I'm not going to kill his. I'm going to keep him with two. So in case he want to buy a house, he good. He can get rid of him or do whatever he want. Mm. We ain't got five, six, seven, eight all on the personal, right? So I'm learning the game, you feel me? So I'm like, I'm like, all right, it's joint venture time. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Look, I, this is how much I make, guys. Check it out. Look at my Toro platform. You see what I'm making? <laughs> Look, I can help you get a little bread. You ain't got to do no work. I'm going to run it. All you got to do is use your credit. Go ahead and get an extra sidecar. That's if they already got a car. Mm -hmm. Some people already got a car, and they ain't got to do none of that. They just give me that. Gotcha. You know what I mean? So they just go get another one. I tell them, I, I'm telling people how to go get the loan, pre-qualify everything. I'm shooting them to the gym. I was shooting the State Farm like it was nothing. State mm. Farm was giving people personal, for personal, private sellers. That's so I was, I was so mad when they stopped. Mm. I'm talking about, they would let you go to a dude who got a Lamborghini Huracan for sale for 100 racks. Give it to him private sale. They don't give a damn. As long as they got a title. Oh, bro, I was going digital. So... I'm learning these techniques and I'm doing joint ventures all around the city. So real quick, so the number one question people ask is, um, where are you keeping all these cars? You got five cars at this mm -hmm. point. Mm -hmm. Where are you keeping them all? So now at this time I had Airbnbs. So I had the place I stayed, the apartment I stayed in, and I had the Airbnb. Mm -hmm. So they had parking decks, I put them in there. Gotcha. And then, and then they house. wouldn't even, they wouldn't even, uh, they won't stay there long enough. They was booked too much. Gotcha. So we was <laughs> back and forth. Let me ask you, 
and, and you've seen both sides. I mean, I mean, from the beginning to like now, was the opportunity bigger before? No. On it was smaller because it was less known. So nobody knew about it. Now everybody know about it, right? And it hasn't stopped anything. So I could tell 80 people how to do this and it's still going to be good because like this, I found this out. It's the same thing with the Airbnb. Like I told you, all those dudes had three apiece. And it was like 20 of us. We go to the gym to hoop. It's 20. Everybody like, they all share, you know, it's networking. Mm. Jesus. They was put laughing at me. I was like, bro, I got to get me some Airbnbs. Yeah. So, you know, I got, I had, at that time I had one. I got like eight now. But at that time, I only had one and I flipped it to three quick. But long story short, it was an oversaturation thing where people worry about oversaturation. But it's the same as any business. McDonald's ain't worried about Burger King, bro. For sure, big fan. You know what I'm saying? They're not worried about Wendy's either. Yeah. So they're going to still eat their people living there. So that's the same thing. So people are always going to need two things, a place to stay and something to drive. It's guaranteed. When people worry about the pandemic, y'all still getting Instacart, Amazon Prime now, mm-hmm. Uber and Lyft drivers still cranking up. You know why? Because guys like me giving them the cars. <laughs> I love it. I I'm love giving it. them the economy cars, baby. And that's, the, that's what I really try to teach. So a lot of people see me in the, the Lamborghinis and the race and stuff like that, and they get it twisted. Like, those are not the primary breadwinners. All right, so, not, so not. I'll, we we're going to get right into that. How many exotic cars do you have? Exotic in my network or did I personally and own? You personally own. Two. 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 Exotic. This is over $150,000 car. Lamborghini, Rafe. You know what the crazy thing is? So, but I see you in all these cars, bro. Right. See, that's the joint venture thing. I'm talking about that I personally own, not that I personally have that I can drive day to day. Which is even better. Exactly. Isn't it dope? I have the freedom on my credit report to do what I like. Go get me a house. Go get me another car if I want because I didn't overexert my credit report, right? And then I can actually drive these cars for free. And then let them, not, nobody pays for them. I don't pay for them. The owner don't pay for them. The customers do. That's the dope thing about mm. it. So we ain't tripping. And and it you, it makes your brand go crazy because you pulling up in these vehicles. Right. And they're like, yo, who is this guy? Right. Right. And that was really um, the reason that um, that I initially jumped in. It wasn't an income play, but I was talking to my wife like, I feel like I need to go to that next level. For sure. I need, I need to pull up in something. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Maybe I don't need to. It's, it's, it's the number one business card. Number one business number card. Number one business card. I swear it's better than any business card you ever had. They be talking to me. They come up to me, ask me what I do all day and night. Everywhere I go. You see what's outside. Mm. Big body Rafe. Yeah. When I go drive that joint, when I tell you, uh, what do you do, sir? <laughs> and then anything I do is taken 100% seriously. Exactly. I change it up all the time. I'm like, I'm a teacher. What do you teach? <laughs> I teach people how to get money. You know I what I mean? It. I might say I'm a, I own a, a rental car agency. I might say I, I run a chain of Airbnbs. I can say whatever I want. It's taken 100% seriously. Mm-hmm. And that's what I teach, too, how to use your car as a business card. It's definitely the, Is that in the course? It's in the course. Oh, it's a, I, I, tell, course. I, te- I teach these under business strategy. So... If you want to, you literally can get a car only for that purpose. You know what I'm saying? To just to use it as a business card. Because yeah. I teach how to get the cars. 
So if you want to learn how to drive a Lamborghini or a Rafe, I can tell you how to get financing for it. Rape is defined as having non-consensual intercourse with another person accomplished by means of force or threats. Intercourse is defined as any penetration, no matter how slight. Now, when we think of rape, we typically think of a situation where you hold a gun to somebody's head or you literally force them down to the ground and force them to submit to sex. And certainly that is an example of rape. But rape can also be charged in a situation where you have sex with somebody who's unconscious. So suppose you go on a date with a, with a woman and you bring her back to your place and you guys are making out and, and you guys are drunk and, and she passes out. And uh, once she passes out drunk, you take her clothes off and have sex with her, you can be charged with rape because she was not awake and alert and able to give consent. And we see many people charged with rape in just that situation. Now, rape is a felony. If you're convicted, you could face up to eight years in state prison more if you have a prior record or if there's injury caused to the victim. And it would make you a registered sex offender for life. So the consequences of being convicted of rape are really devastating. That said, we find that a lot of innocent people get wrongly accused of rape. And this happens really for a number of reasons. First of all, there's a lot of false accusations. A lot of times the accuser will, will make accusations out of anger or jealousy or spite. We've seen situations where a guy was dating a young lady and uh, she wanted to take the relationship further and she wanted to be exclusive and he didn't want to do that and, and wasn't giving her the attention she was seeking. And she felt insulted and she felt hurt and made false accusations out of spite to get him in trouble. And situations like that are actually very common. We also find a lot of times the accuser will make a false accusation of rape uh, in order to get attention. A lot of times the accuser has mental health issues. The accuser is a, a narcissist. Uh, and the accuser likes the idea that they're so desirable that other people are desperate to have sex with them and uh, desperate enough to commit rape. And, and so they imagine things and they make false accusations to try to create this reality as part of their mental pathology. We see this uh, very commonly. Also, a lot of accusations of rape arise out of a misunderstanding. So it may be a situation where you went out with someone and you guys were making out and there was foreplay and you ultimately had sex with the person. But later the person says, oh, I didn't really want to do it, but I, I was scared to speak up. I was scared to say no. I, it, it was against my will. But if that person didn't communicate that to you, and based on the circumstances, you honestly and reasonably believe that they were into it and that it was consensual, then that's really not a rape. Here at Shouse Law Group, we've had a great deal of success over the years in defending clients who were falsely accused of rape and date rape. 
We had a case recently where a young man was accused of raping a young lady that he was dating. And the family came to me right after the accusation was made and even before charges were filed. And I was able to go to the DA before the DA filed charges and say, listen, just wait on this a week. Let me do an investigation. And I sent my investigator to look at the background of this young lady who made the accusation. And we found a restraining order a couple years earlier that she had gotten on a previous boyfriend. And we got the declaration and we looked at it. And she made an accusation of rape against this other person that was almost identical to what she was accusing my client of doing. And I brought this to the DA and I said, look, this, this young lady is a serial victim. She accuses all her boyfriends of the same thing. And when the DA looked at that, she decided not to file any charges. So this case really underscores the critical importance of doing an independent investigation and being proactive anytime there's an accusation uh, of rape or sexual assault against one of our clients. If you or a loved one is in a situation like this where you're being accused of rape, investigated for rape, charged with rape, we invite you to contact us here at Shouse Law Group. The sooner we get involved, the sooner we investigate, the sooner we work up the defense, the more effective we can be. Remorse. I don't want to say zero, but I'm up there at about one and two percent. Um, most of the time I'm paying that defense lawyer, whether they're a public defender or CJA attorney. I expect them to do that. Uh, what is much more meaningful to me, and I believe most of the other judges that I know, is if you believe that that defendant is truly remorseful and given some thought about it. Um, and it's one of those things, it's just like if your kid throws a baseball through your window and you say, I'm sorry, that's one thing. If the kid throws a baseball through the window and is busy cleaning it up and doesn't try to blame it on Bobby next door as a contributing somebody, but I'm fixing it and I really know what I've done here and I've thought about it and I can see how it's affecting you and others, um, that's really meaningful. And you can usually see it. I mean, not that federal judges have some special power to tell if somebody's saying BS or not, but there's a speech that I think every public defender gives every defendant. And if you repeat that speech, that's not real meaningful. Um, but you can tell when somebody's given some thought that, hey, I realize that I've hurt somebody else and somebody else may be my kid, maybe my wife, maybe somebody else. Here's how I understand that I have damaged somebody else in this process. And even if they're just selling some small quantity of drugs to feed their own habit, they've damaged other members of society and caused hurt to someone else's family. And so recognizing your actions go beyond yourself, and you saying you're sorry is a lot more meaningful than the public defender or CJA attorney saying you're sorry. And in your experience, how, 
how frequently do you see defendants really invest the time and the energy to communicate that remorse to you? Is that something that you see a lot of, or is that something that you would like to see more of? I'd like to see more of it. I mean, to answer your initial question, I mean, I can probably count on one hand. I've been on the bench about three years. Um, I can count on one hand where I, I was genuinely moved by somebody's apology. They really recognized it, not just a check mark of the box. I'm supposed to say I'm sorry. I'm supposed to say this and I'm supposed to say this, but a true introspection and thinking about how they got there, um, I think is pretty valuable. It's valuable for all of us, right? I mean, it's what they taught you in Sunday school, thinking about how to, how did my actions affect others? And not just say I'm sorry, but to, to go about trying to remedy that. Um, and, you know, a lot of times we talk about in some cases and some jurisdictions to have restorative justice type programs and try to put people together to heal that, that divide. Um, you don't need an order to do that. You just need a pen and a piece of paper and it to be genuine and I think most humans have the capacity to forgive and to move on. Sometimes defendants talk talk to us about saying that their their defense attorneys do not want them to talk in court. And if that's the case, would would you have any guidance for a defendant whose defense attorney is saying, I don't want you to prepare this lengthy statement of remorse for appeal reasons or for something else. Sometimes the defendant really wants to express that, but on advice of counsel, he doesn't do it. Do you have any guidance for somebody who faces that dilemma? Yeah, I think first one, really ask why. You know, try to figure out what that is. Sometimes, um, I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want a defendant talking either. And it has nothing to do with an appeal. It's because that person isn't remorseful and hasn't given some thought and feels like they're the victim um, and hasn't owned up to their situation. Well, that could hurt you. You know that that could really hurt a defendant to go in. So it may be the criminal defense lawyer saying, "You're not in a state of mind." that will be advantageous in your sentencing. If it's for an appeal pur purpose, that's something, a whole other avenue, and you don't want to mess up an appeal, but at least in my district, we're close to 95% guilty plea rates. So we have very few trials, and that doesn't come up a whole lot. So that that's an outlier. So I, I really would want to ask why I'd like to do this. I've heard it can be effective in my case. Is there something that I'm doing that makes it not advantageous for me to stand up? Credit cards than any other product in the history of the world. And it worked. You all have one or two or 22. It worked. Don't you feel stupid? 
Don't you feel manipulated. Don't you feel used. You should. You're a slave. The borrower is slave to the lender. So don't improve your credit score. Have a goal of having everything paid off and every account closed. And then somewhere around six months later, your credit score will be fabulously indeterminable. Zero. How would I get a house? How would I get a house? Well, two possibilities then. You'd have to get a mortgage with someone that doesn't use a credit score to issue a mortgage, which is a mortgage company who actually knows how to write mortgages the old-fashioned way. It's called manual underwriting, like Churchill Mortgage does. Or you'd have to save up and pay cash. <gasps> how can you do that knowing you pay cash for a house? You're just telling people not to buy houses. You're just unrealistic. Dave Ramsey is unrealistic. Yeah. Yeah, I am. And I live that way. I live in an unrealistic world where I've become unrealistically wealthy managing money God's ways. It works every time. So you have to be like that young couple I ran into. He was an engineer and she's a teacher. Just talked to him the other day. They're young. They're making a lot of money for a young couple. So they're unusual, granted. But they were making right around a hundred. And they're, you know, twenty-four years old when they started. They had no debt. And they decided they were not gonna borrow money for a house. So they lived in an apartment, a garage apartment out back of a rich old lady's house. He cut the rich old lady's grass and kept her gutters cleaned out, and the rent was almost free because of that. Their friends made fun of them. Their parents thought they needed counseling. But they made 100 and their rent was $250 a month in a nice city in a nice neighborhood. But it's a garage apartment out top of the, over the top of a garage out back of a lady's house. It was not it was not fabulous. And you know what they did? They saved almost well, I mean, I think they saved right at $50,000 a year for four years, and they paid cash for a $200,000 house when they were 28. But everybody made fun of them. Now, if you're making, by then, $125,000 a year, and you're 28 or 30 years old, and you never have a house payment the rest of your life, do you know how rich you're going to be? See why you don't need a FICO score? Hello, are you starting to catch on to these numbers? This is real. So don't improve your FICO score. Set out to destroy it as quickly as possible by being 100% debt-free with all accounts closed as soon as you possibly can. So kind of countercultural, isn't it? Well, the Bible says that. It says, be not conformed to this world. Don't be like everybody else. But be transformed. How are you transformed? The renewing of your mind. You need ideas that are different than everybody else's ideas. Normal is broke. 78% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. 
The foreclosure rate is at an all-time high. The bankruptcy rate is at an all-time high. And the number one cause of divorce in America today is money fights and money problems. Do you want to be normal? Normal sucks. Why would you want to be normal? Whatever everybody else is doing, you want to do exactly the opposite, don't you? Otherwise, you're going to be just like them. If you do what they do, you're going to be just like them. So go run up your FICO score if you want to be broke your whole life. Go worry about your I love debt score if you want to be broke your whole life. You'll be broke. Mathematically. It's a proven freaking fact. Or you can be different than everyone else. Be weird. Don't be normal. Mm, That's what winning is. Photos out there that people will find on the internet and they know exactly how old the participants are. And once they, they uh, find you in possession of those materials, they can date it with precision. Other times, it's simply a matter of looking at the photographs and forming an assessment. Does this person appear to be uh, underage? And sometimes you're looking at the development of the, of the subjects in the picture. You're looking at, you know, whether there's, there's, uh, you know, pubic hair, for example, and it could be that they have an expert witness testify and give age approximations, or ultimately that would be a, a question for a jury. So the jury would, would take a look at the images. And if the jury felt beyond a reasonable doubt that the participant was under age, uh, then they would find a conviction. More often than not, if age was ambiguous, the prosecutor might choose not to file. But, but when, when we see these cases prosecuted, most of the time, when you look at the images, it's very clear that you're dealing with minors. So, Mike, let's say you have a situation, and I'm sure this is not uncommon, where the cops go to somebody's house, they seize a bunch of images on a computer of child pornography, there's five or six people that live there and, you know, they have a suspect who they think it belongs to, but they can't prove. What do they do to try to, to, to coax an admission from that person or, or, or really nail the one individual they suspect? In almost every scenario, what they do is they, in essence, threaten to arrest everybody unless the person who it belongs to steps forward. And remarkably, in almost every scenario, the person who it belongs to steps forward and says it's mine uh, in order to protect others from being arrested. Mm -hmm. But what's important to know is this. One, it's an idle threat. I've never seen a situation where the police actually arrested everyone in a home where Mm -hmm. child pornography was found. Two... You don't need to incriminate yourself. You have Fifth Amendment rights, the right against self-incrimination. There's no need to to make an admission. In fact, uh, you shouldn't make an admission. Um, You should uh, assert your rights and you should take the Fifth. That's... As a general matter, I mean, anytime you're suspected of a crime, you should never talk to the police without a lawyer, right? That is correct. And this is certainly, you know, one example where you you never should. That is correct. I would note also that we've also seen situations where somebody stepped forward and said, the pornography is mine, 
even when in fact it wasn't, mm -hmm. but they may have had elderly parents, for example, and they didn't want to see their parents getting arrested. Mm -hmm. So they make a false confession mm -hmm. regarding the possession of child pornography to avoid seeing others get arrested. So Take the rap for someone else. That's right. Now, in terms of defenses, what about search and seizure? I mean, if the police suspect that someone is downloading images of, of naked children, do they have a right to sort of uh, raid their house and seize their computers and go through their personal files, or, or does that violate their privacy? An individual has the right to be free from unreasonable search and seizure in their home. And what that means is that the police just can't come to your house and come, you know, storming in and seize your computer, except in two circumstances. One, where the police have a search warrant signed by a judge. And of course, if the police come to your house with a warrant, you should allow them to act in furtherance of the warrant. But if they come to your house without a warrant and they say, hey, um, we would like to take a look at your computers, may we do so? Absolutely, an individual has the right to deny consent, and as a and and as an attorney, a defense attorney, I would absolutely absolutely advise people not to give consent to search. If the police come to your home to search and ask you for your consent for consent, what you should do is you should call a defense attorney right away, not give consent. So, so let's say that the police do violate someone's right and they don't have a warrant or the warrant is defective and, and they go and seize their computer and seize images of child porn. Uh, is it possible to get cases like that thrown out because the police violated their rights? Absolutely. A defense counsel would file a motion to suppress the evidence and if they could convince a court that the evidence was obtained unlawfully, the judge would be bound to throw the evidence out, and ultimately dismiss the case. And that would be a best-case scenario, obviously, for the client. Absolutely. So, Mike, I guess the take-home uh, for, for our viewers is this, that someone who gets arrested for this crime, you know, often is very demoralized and embarrassed and humiliated and, and, and has this sense like, my life is over. But But that's not always the case. I mean, a, a good criminal defense lawyer here in Nevada can do a lot to help someone charged with this. In I want to introduce you to a well-educated man who went to prison. We're going to hear about why he went to prison and what he did while he was in prison. David, thanks so much for being on the program. Tell us a little bit about your background before we get into your prison experience. Thank you, Michael. Pleasure to be here. Uh, I was a practicing and licensed attorney in the state of Illinois for almost 15 years prior to becoming a uh, management member of a, of a startup biotech company in the Chicago area. Uh, and uh, that ultimately led me to prison uh, where I was convicted uh, in uh, the early 2000s of a white collar crime of uh, wire and mail fraud. Uh, Let, let's talk about that for a second because people might have some level of, you know, that, that doesn't seem congruent. You're, a, you're an attorney. Uh, you later became a CEO and that you found, and yet you found yourself in the crosshairs of prosecutors. Tell us 
a little bit about what it felt like to learn that the Department of Justice was targeting you for prosecution. The case ultimately began as a uh, Securities and Exchange Commission civil case, and there was a referral, as I understood it, made to the uh, U.S. Uh, Attorney's Office in, in the Northern District of Illinois. It was How long very did that take? You found out that there was a SEC investigation, and was there actually a finding in the Securities and Exchange Commission investigation? No, actually. That began, the SEC investigation began uh, in early 2002, uh, and uh, the SEC uh, ultimately did not uh, come to a conclusion in that case until after the criminal case was resolved. It was actually put on hold during the pendency of the criminal case. So the so, cases were going simultaneously. First, there was a Securities correct. Exchange Commission case, then that was put on hold and the DOJ picked it up. Is that right? That's correct. And when you found out that you were a target of, of uh, criminal charges, what did you do? Did you, did you agree to cooperate or did you go to trial or, or did you plead guilty? What did you do? Well, when I first found out I was a target was during a, uh, a raid of our corporate facilities. And I wasn't told I was a target, but it was basically a common sense conclusion. I hired an attorney at that time, and uh, the case ultimately was not prosecuted, or the initiation of the prosecution didn't begin for another two to three years. So there was a, a long period of time that I remained the CEO of the company and chairman of the board, but then ultimately I relinquished those positions. Others came involved. and, and Tell us about that. That's, that's interesting. So you... There, the the Department of Justice raided your facility. Then there was a two or three year period before you were charged. Is that what I understood you to say? That's correct. And were you operating uh, in the capacity as if this was going to be, you were going to be exonerated from that raid? Or were you concerned that there could possibly be criminal implications? I was quite concerned there was likely to be criminal uh, repercussions. The problem was that if the company shut its doors at that point, there certainly would have been, in my view, criminal repercussions. So I continued as I was. So you continued, and then ultimately they returned an indictment. Did they arrest you, or did they just serve you? I was not. I was never arrested. Uh, I had counsel at that point who the U.S. attorney was familiar with. So I, uh, I, uh, I just, it was a uh, no cash uh, self-recognizance bond scenario where I simply appeared for my arraignment. And you appeared for your arraignment and then how did it ultimately end up with regard to the adjudication of that case? Did you plead guilty or did you go to trial? I ultimately pled guilty approximately two years later. What was the cost of litigating that case. Do you recall, David? Um, I believe it was uh, $25,000. So not a tremendous amount of legal ex legal fees at that time. Um, were you happy with the representation you received? Yes. And you ultimately agreed to plead guilty to a sentence of how long? 14 years. Well, was, let me let me backtrack. I did not agree to a, a fixed term of incarceration. Um, 
we simply agreed to plead guilty without a determination or agreement on the loss figure, which is the large driver of the sentence ultimately in these mail fraud, wire fraud cases, uh, my responsibility for a particular loss figure. So because that was left open, I didn't agree to a, uh, an, an amount of years. That was never what were you anticipating with regard to a sentence when you agreed to take the plea agreement? Uh, in the area of 10 years. It was, uh, I was told by my counsels at that point, because I also had sentencing, uh, uh, specialist in sentencing at that point, that they were confident that I would be able to get to a minimum security camp initially. That did not occur. So you thought that you would get 10 years. Had you not gone, had you not accepted the next court, they're talking about self-employment tax, which I'll be talking about in a second, self-employment tax. As an S-Corp, you can start to bypass some of those self-employment taxes to save yourself some money and keep it in your pocket. And that's what we'll be talking about here in this next step. All right, now we're down to the fun part. Let's break down an LLC that's taxed as a sole proprietorship, LLC taxed as an S-Corp, and really showing you the numbers from a tax standpoint, right? And then we'll get into when is it actually worth your time to be elected to be taxed as an S-Corp because there is a breaking point of when it's worth your time, right? Because me as an entrepreneur, taxes, let's just take taxes away from this. There's, 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 a, there's a, t a cost of time, right? As entrepreneurs, we, we have time that, that we need to make money, marketing, et cetera, right? And then on top of that, we're paying for attorneys and we're paying for tax, tax professionals or CPAs, or if we have to pay state fees for our S-Corp, then there's a certain amount of time that's involved to do all of these things, which means that it needs to be worth my time to save that money by electing to be taxed as an S-Corp, which we'll talk about in that next part after that. But let's break this down here um, of why an S-Corp can be an advantage to those that are netting a certain amount of money. So I, I'm, I'm going to compare both here. So you'll see LLC taxes and S, uh, sole prop and the LLC taxes and S-Corp. And we're going to talk about both here. So again, we still got Prince Donnell LLC. Y'all know that he, Prince Donnell LLC, I do marketing, TikTok, YouTube, all types of stuff, right? And um, like I talked about in the last example, same example here, made $150,000 in revenue, right? Um, 50,000 in expenses, I netted 100K. Now, my LLC is taxes and S Corp over here, same thing, 150,000 in revenue. 50,000 in expenses, and then I netted 100K. Same examples here on both sides, on both both sides of the tax. Now remember, as an LLC tax is a uh, sole prop, remember, you're paying so, uh, self-employment tax on the entire net of the 100K, okay? Self-employment tax, uh, Medicare, Social Security, 15.3%. You're paying $15,300, a bill that you gotta pay to the government, right? And then remember, let's say that my taxable income, when, uh, when that money passes through to my personal tax return, let's say that my taxable income is $80,000. Well, now on my taxable income of $80,000, I got to pay federal taxes, state taxes, local taxes. I'm here in Philadelphia, and other, there's other taxes that could be involved as well. So let's just assume that I'm paying about 25% between federal, state, local, and other tax. 
then that, let's say it's 20 grand that I got to cut out to the government as well. Well, okay, that means total between self-employment tax and my federal, state, local, and other taxes, I'm paying about $36,000 for that year in taxes. That's about 3,000 a month, like we talked about in the last part of the video. That's a lot of money, okay? And I could think of like 50 different ways I could use this money right here, okay? So that's that's being taxed as sole proprietor. You're not getting any savings here on the sole proprietor side, no savings, right? But again, like I told you on the earlier part of the video, that's okay if you're just starting out and you may not be making a lot of profitability. Remember, this is on netting 100K. If you're only netting 15, 20K, 30K, then slow your roll for a second and I'll talk about that. You're still, you're still gearing yourself up, okay? Now, let's talk about the LLC taxes and S-Corp with the same example where I netted 100,000. Here's the difference with the S-Corp on where the tax savings comes into play that you've heard all over the internet. With that 100,000, now remember, on the sole prop side, I'm paying self-employment tax on the entire 100,000. Here's the difference with the S-Corp. The difference with the S-Corp is that I am able to control how this, this $100,000 is paid, okay? Now, I have two ways that I can pay out this $100,000 in net income that my business made. The first way that I can pay it out is through a reasonable salary, and the second way I can pay that out is through a distribution. Let's talk about both, right? Now, I'm, I'm sure that y'all know that when you're an LLC as a uh, sole proprietor, you're not you're not you're not paying a salary as an LLC to sole sole prop. There's no salary involved, right? You just write yourself a check, but you don't. There's no payroll system for you as the actual business owner of the LLC to sole prop. When you're taxed as an S corp, you actually become an employee now of the company of your own company. You're an employee. You have to pay yourself a reasonable salary now, which I would suggest going to a payroll service in order to do that. Please do that, because if you don't, and you just write it yourself, now you're going to have other tax situations in the future. Go with a payroll service, uh, run your reason, run your salary through there, so that they can already take the tax.